Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So... At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable. It's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash prenatal. From the High Center Studios of Messiah College here at 21 Chester Place in Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome everyone to episode 50 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. By the way, Drew, I think you might be confused. How do you mean? Well, as our loyal listeners know, in the opening of each episode, when you say we are recording from the High Center Studios at Messiah College, you usually make an obscure reference to the topic of the podcast before you say, in Grantham, Pennsylvania. So, for example, in episode 49, which was an episode on American political partisanship, you said, from the High Center Studios of Messiah College, where we hope to foster dialogue over division in Grantham, PA. That's what I did, right? We're talking about the Adams family. Adams family live at 21 Chester Place. Uh, yes, the Adams family did live at 21 Chester Place. But this episode is not about Gomez, Morticia, Wednesday, Pugsley, Uncle Fester, and Lurch. I'm suddenly getting the feeling that I'm, I didn't do the reading for class, and I have to <laughs> try to make it up as I go along. So you're telling me that today's episode is not about the way the 1964 television show serves as a piece of social criticism that satires the 1950s view of quote-unquote family values as represented in shows like Leave it to Beaver or Father Knows Best? No. You're thinking of the Adams family with two Ds. We are talking today with Sarah Giorgini about the other Adams family, John, Abigail, John Quincy, Henry. Rut-row. <laughs> but in all seriousness... Sarah Giorgini has written a really interesting family history of the Adams family, 1D, and their religious beliefs. And the book is titled Household Gods. So anyone interested in the religious beliefs of the founding fathers and their wives uh, will actually find this book a really valuable addition, I think, to their personal libraries. Man, it does sound interesting. Actually, probably a lot more interesting than, than the episode I had in mind when I, when I <laughs> opened things up. But don't you need to acknowledge something first, John? What's that? Today is the 50th anniversary of the Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast. Bow, bow, bow. Indeed it is. You know something, Drew? I never thought we would actually make it to 50 episodes. Looking back, you know, we've had some great episodes. Uh, what are some of your favorites? Well, you know, you usually task me with coming up with a two or three episodes a season, kind of coming up with the uh, out-of-left-field pitch, which leads me to segue. I think one of my favorite uh, episodes, and partly because we spoke a lot about my favorite sport baseball was our interview with uh, Adrian Burgos Jr. Right. talking about the Latino history of baseball. 
I also was a big fan again, uh, as a big comic book fan, big big fan of our episode with Jonathan Federvorm, the graphic artist behind Battle Lines, uh, a uh, graphic history of the Civil War. Yeah. Speaking of sports episodes, what was the guy's name? The ESPN. Uh, Paul Lucas. Paul Lucas. Yeah, he was great. I kind of remember I got him upset about something. Yeah, that was the- that was the fieriest <laughs> a guest has ever gotten. Yeah, he was oh, offended by one of my questions. But, I kept pushing him on. And I, and I do believe it was a question I wrote for you. But. So he was he was the guy who studies like Major League Baseball vintage uniforms. Yeah, all, all so sports, forth. not just Major League Baseball, but all right. but all sports. He was a columnist at, at ESPN.com. He's actually not there anymore. He's been writing for uh, SportsIllustrated.com now. Okay. But okay. I mean, check him out. I'm a big fan of his work. He really yeah. get, takes these deep dives into the kind of material culture of sports uniforms. I mean, I think I think if you go back and listen to that episode too, you can kind of get a sense of 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 us learning the ropes. That's true. Of That's true. How to ask good questions as interviewers. We've had a lot of really serious award-winning historians on here over the years. Um, very early in our first season, I think Annette Gordon-Reed and Peter Onuf were on, right? Annette Gordon-Reed, a Pulitzer Prize winner. We had Nancy Toms talking about the history of medicine right after she wrote her Bancroft Prize-winning book. Nancy McLean, a National Book Award finalist. So we've had some some heavy hitters. And then who could forget the Kevin Cruz episode on Twitter Storians and Jamar Tisby, just a couple episodes on his book, The Color of Compromise. Uh, I really liked Armory Griffith's conversation about sort of the Christian right and sexual ethics that we had. Man, we have had some great guests, haven't we? I've been on a couple panels talking about the podcast, as many of our listeners will know. And the one thing I always say is you won't know if someone is going to reject your offer to be on the show until you ask. And that was probably the smartest move we made in our first season yeah. was to just say, who do we want on the podcast? And just, you know, I, I, I said, go for it. I just sent a bunch of cold emails to these, yeah. to these people. And many of them, I would venture to say the majority of them came back and said, yeah, why not? I'll do the podcast. You know, another, another great episode a couple seasons ago, maybe it was last season, was Catherine O'Donnell's book on Elizabeth uh, Ann Seton. Absolutely. That was a, that was a great conversation. Um, Bruce Berglund and Amy Bass, who've been on twice, right? Talking yep. about sports. Bruce on hockey, and I think the first time we had him on, he was talking about Eastern Europe. Yeah, he's probably, of our repeat guests, he's probably had the biggest swing between the two. That's uh, right. Between the two episodes. And Amy was here to talk sports and youth soccer with her new book. You know what other episode I really liked back when we were over in the in the radio station was uh, Ann Little yes, on writing yes. religious bi- biography. Well, and she's that's the one that's probably given me the best uh, the best return on investment as far as connections uh, yeah. within my own field. She's someone who I run into a lot at conferences because she works in such a similar field as both you and I do. And and she always says, "Hey, how are you doing? How are you still working with John?" And yeah, and good, so that, that's good. been that's been a lot of fun too. And she's she's kind of a a wonderful personality throughout the the field of early American history. So everyone knows who she is. So I think we've done a good job here in these would, first 50 episodes. I, um, you know, we've had some great studio producers along the way as well. Um, uh, Michaela Mummert started us out and then uh, Josh Lowry. And now we have the indispensable uh, Abigail LaBianca who's with us. So uh, we've had a good staff along the way. You know, you have been brilliant, Drew, as a producer. Oh, oh stop. And, um, and you know, we have our Patreon campaign. So, you know, if, if you're listening to this episode for the first time, maybe you're a Sarah Giorgini fan or a John Adams fan or a John Quincy Adams fan, and you got attracted to the episode this way, go back and listen to some of our, our episodes. And Drew, why don't you tell all of our new listeners and remind some of our regular listeners about how they can connect with uh, the podcast. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a proud member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Head to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. Our podcast is brought to you through the generous donations of Lisa DeGuardi, Richard Green, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, Margaret Graves, and Gretchen Adams. And as always, many thanks to Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. We are also sponsored by the Lindhurst Group, a history, museum, and nonprofit consulting firm providing community-focused engagement strategies for institutional planning, organizational assessments, and interpretive direction. If you want to become a sponsor of the show, please head over to thewaveimprovement.com and click support. And as always, the best way to spread the word is to tell a friend, shout it out, make sure other people know that we are doing this work. Every personal contact is a new listener, and that's a great way to build an audience. If you want to follow us on Twitter or Facebook, we're at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. 
and consider giving us a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. Yeah, indeed, Drew. When we started the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast in 2016, I'll be honest, we didn't know what to expect. Would people be interested in listening to a podcast with serious reflection on American history and public life? Would people be interested in supporting such an effort? I think we weren't sure. So as we approach our 50th anniversary, I think the answer to both of those questions is a resounding yes. And we could not have done this without you, our faithful patrons. Thank you so much for your financial support over the years as we continue to have conversations with guests who help us understand how the past shapes the present. We are honored to partner with you in this important work. And remember, we always need good history in times of social and cultural change in order to remind us who we are and where we are going as a people. Sarah Giorgini will be with us shortly, but first, you have some commentary for us, John. In 2010, the political commentator Glenn Beck devoted an entire television program to a discussion of George Whitfield, the 18th century evangelical revivalist and the precipitator of the event known as the First Great Awakening. Near the end of the show, Beck's conversation with his guests, who were two early American religious historians, turned to the topic of slavery. Beck wondered how Whitfield could inspire anti-slavery advocates in England, such as John Newton, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, while at the same time owning slaves. Befuddled by this paradox and clearly at a loss for words, Beck turned to the camera and said, sometimes history is a little complex. Though Beck's use of history in his television and radio programs seldom reflects this kind of complexity. In this particular case, he was absolutely right. History is complex. Heroes sometimes do unheroic things. It is the responsibility of the historian to make every effort to explain the past in all its fullness. To do otherwise is not only to cease to be a historian, but to fail to act with integrity in interpreting the complexity of human activity in the world. Such a lesson applies to those who doggedly defend the notion that the United States was founded as a Christian nation, and those who doggedly defend the notion that the United States was founded as a secular nation. Historians will never achieve complete objectivity, but they should always strive to be truth-tellers. Anything less is a moral failure, a failure to respect the complicated nature of the human condition as it has played out through time. Shortly after Beck's remarks, I published a book titled Was America Founded as a Christian Nation? A Historical Introduction. And by the way, we can send you a copy as a thank you if you support the podcast. If you read that book, you know that it never offers a definitive answer to the question I pose in its title. I'm sure some readers will be frustrated by this. Was America founded as a Christian nation? This question cannot be answered with a simple yes or no response. Instead, what I have tried to do in this primer is to give readers some things to think about and perhaps to thoughtfully debate whenever this historical question arises in their churches, schools, families, and places of employment. The issue of whether the United States is a Christian nation does not seem to be going away anytime soon. I think it is fair to say that those who believe that the United States is a Christian nation have a good chunk of American history on their side. Throughout the 19th and 20th centuries and into the 21st century, there have always been believers who have tried to promote this idea. In the early 19th century, such a view was part of the cultural mainstream. Christians believed that they were living in a Christian nation. A close look at the historical record suggests that they were probably right. Though the Constitution would always prevent the United States from making Christianity its established faith, the religious culture of pre-Civil War America was shaped by evangelical Protestantism. It is even plausible to suggest that the Civil War was, at one level, a war over just what kind of Christian nation America would be. As the United States entered the 20th century, the meaning of the phrase Christian nation continued to be contested. Conservative evangelicals and liberal Protestants fought diligently for what they believed to be the Christian soul of the nation. By the 20th century, Catholics had provided their own vision of the United States as a Christian nation. 
Finally, in the wake of the turbulent 1960s and a series of Supreme Court decisions that seemed to be removing Christian values from the public square, the Christian right emerged in American political culture and led the charge in forwarding the idea that the United States was founded as a Christian nation and continued to be one. If we went back to the era of the American Revolution, however, it would be difficult to suggest, based upon the formal responses to British taxation in the years between 1765 and 1774, that the leaders of the American Revolution were driven by overtly Christian values. Ministers used the Bible extensively to justify rebellion against England, but their interpretations of the Bible were more informed by the popular political ideas of the day than by any kind of sound theological reflection and exegesis. Though the Declaration of Independence refers to God multiple times, it cannot be called a Christian document. The same might be said for the United States Constitution, which refers to God not at all. But when it comes to the individual states, today's defenders of Christian America may have a compelling case. Nearly all of the state constitutions recognize God and Christianity, and many required officeholders to affirm Christian theology. Others maintain Christianity as the official and established state religion well into the 19th century. The American founding fathers were an eclectic religious group. Some claimed to be Christians, but rejected doctrines that are central to historic Christian orthodoxy such as the inspiration of the Bible, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or the Trinity. Others exemplified behavior that might lead one to question the depth of their Christian commitments. And others were devout believers who tried to bring their faith to bear on their vision for the nation they helped to found. If there were two universal ideas that all the founders believed about the relationship between religion and the new nation— It was that religion was necessary in order to sustain an ordered and virtuous republic and that the government should protect religious freedom. In a soundbite culture where public figures appeal to the past to score political points or advance a particular cultural agenda, we owe it to ourselves to be informed citizens who can speak intelligently and thoughtfully about the role of religion in our nation's past. Sarah Giorgini earned her Ph.D. in American History at Boston University in 2016 and is currently the series editor for the Papers of John Adams, part of the Adams Papers at the Massachusetts Historical Society, an editorial project that has published nearly 50 scholarly editions of the personal and public papers written, accumulated, and preserved by President John Adams and his family. She writes regularly about intellectual and religious history at several blogs and websites, including Smithsonian.com, and is the author of Household Gods, The Religious Lives of the Adams Family, out in 2019 with Oxford University Press. Our guest on today's episode is Sarah Giorgini. She is the author of a brand new book, uh, Household Gods, The Religious Lives of the Adams Family, which just came out. 2019 with Oxford University Press. I have gotten to know Sarah a little bit. We've served on a committee together with the Organization of American Historians. Welcome to the show. Thank you, John, and hello, listeners. Let's get to know you a little bit, Sarah, here. Tell us about the Adams Papers at the Massachusetts Historical Society in Boston, and and what do you do there? What is your role, your sort of day-to-day job as as an editor? I serve as series editor for the papers of John Adams, and that's part of an editorial project that was born here in the 1950s. The Adams family papers contain about a quarter of a million manuscript pages of letter books, diaries, correspondence, photographs, drawings, poetry, everything that the Adamses across 10 generations wow. from about the 17th century through to the early 20th century wrote and collected as they went about their lives in American public service and around the world. So our job as editors is to create an authoritative text 
from those manuscripts. We have three series that we publish, and the first one is the Diaries series. That's kind of the most important one to get out first, right? The Adamses right. talking in their own words as they live through history. And the second series, the Adams Family Correspondence, which we're just exiting the first Adams presidency um, in, deals with the social and cultural history of early America. And in that series, Abigail Adams and her candid, colorful descriptions of life in and around the White House is really the star. And then there's my series, which is the papers of John Adams and contains really the story of the Adams's public service. So I deal with war and peace and treaties and everything in between. Um, and so our goal is to create an authoritative text. So we look very carefully at the manuscript, we match up our transcription, we collate each letter together doing a tandem reading, and we produce something that scholars and the general public can use, a way to access the past through this unique family archive. Now, Sarah, are you um, still putting these volumes out in hard copy as well as sort of online? And how does, how does that That's work? That's a great question. Yeah. So the Adamses, who I think have always been big fans of science and technology themselves, I think would appreciate our approach, which is both a letterpress edition, so mm -hmm. that hardback book that you can access in your university library right. or elsewhere, and also a digital edition that's freely available on the Massachusetts Historical Society website under our Presidential Papers tab. You can also look at rough transcriptions of documents yet to be printed thanks to Founders Online right. and the National Archives. Let's talk a little bit about household gods, right? Since that's what we're here to, mm -hmm. to, to discuss. Uh, you mm -hmm. conceive this book as a family history of religion in America, also, of course, uh, religion in the Adams family. Uh, for those who haven't read the book or may want to pick the book up, Let's just get this out there so we can move forward. Who are the mm -hmm. members of the Adams family that you discuss uh, in the book? Like, who are the subjects? The Adams family's religious adventures and household gods really begin with their Puritan immigrants. Yeah. We start in 17th century Somerset, England, and we look at why the first Adamses come to America, how they struggle to replant Christianity here. And then we continue that story through the American Revolution, through the Civil War, and into the dawn of what we often call the American century. Something that I really wanted to do in Household Gods was to tell a new narrative of American religion. I wanted to take this one family's experience and see if I could grit it up against everything we think we know when we study and teach American religion. I wanted to see if they came into conflict at any moment with their public duties and their private sentiments. And then I hoped, I really hoped that they were going to write about it in this amazing archive that they left us. Yeah. And what I found with the Adamses is that they prayed and told. So we have these incredible letters that chart their journey through all the different isms they encounter, whether it's providentialism or atheism or something else entirely. And we have this record that they give us of living through these huge transformative moments in American religion. And in some cases, what I discovered by using very straightforward family history methods mm -hmm. is that the hinges fell off what I thought I knew. Yeah. All the turning points that I was used to studying and using in the classroom or in workshops here in our public history institution, none of those really worked because I needed to take a closer look at family history resources, yeah. at local history. I had to understand what was more epic you know, huge changes happening in American religion or the changing of a minister at their local church. Yeah. And often it was the latter. And that really surprised me. It was something I struggled with quite a bit as I was constructing this family history of religion. The other thing that I had to do besides rejiggering my sources was think about my timeline. And making it a three-century story... Yeah was a challenge. Blessedly, I had John Roberts at Boston University mm -hmm. um, as my dissertation advisor, and he didn't even blink when I walked yeah. in and yeah. said, I'd really like to do a 300-year family history yeah. of religion. Yeah. Instead, he said, okay, how are you going to go about it? And so that really forced me to think about how we tell family history, how the family is an understudied 
sphere for intellectual development and cultural conflict in America. And it made me really argue that much harder for family history as part of the intellectual history practice. So I needed to chart as many Adamses as I could but I kept the focus on the ones who left me the most archival evidence, often the statesmen and their wives. And I also thought about the ones who really struggled the most. I wasn't just going into the story to write about religion and faith. I wanted to write about doubt. I wanted to write about those pivotal hinges in their own religious experiences and the encounters that they had. So the Adams family members that I chose to focus on in the end still covered that big arc from yeah. Puritan emigres onto liberal congregationalists in the 18th century into Victorians who were more interested in worship aesthetics. And then finally landed me toward the end of the 19th century with a pair of brothers one who becomes agnostic and then atheist, and another who dabbles but can't quite bring himself to commit wholly to Roman Catholicism. Yeah, that is such a great uh, family history. Just seems you convinced me that this is just a really <laughs> neglected way of thinking about these large, big term mm-hmm. changes. Drew, you had a question. Yeah, we, we've been celebrating uh, 50 episodes, and so we've had a lot of guests with some great titles, but I think this one might be my favorite title of any, <laughs> any of the authors we've had on the show uh, thus far. So can you explain what you mean by, by household gods? Well, first off, huzzah and congrats for 50 episodes. Thank you. That is a monumental achievement, so we should all celebrate that. Drew is pumping his um, fist right but- now, Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, seriously, I think it's podcasts like this that help to bring scholars in touch with a wider audience. And so I'm, I'm really sincere in my congratulations on that point. As for the Household Gods title, I wasn't quite sure what to call this dissertation slash book as it evolved. And none of the more fun titles like Adam's Family Values (laughs) seemed up for grabs (laughs) until. So I, I thought about it and I really wanted something that connected these ideas in what the latter Henry Adams would call the family mind, which is an idea that consumed me. These two principles of Christianity with a capital C and Republicanism with a lowercase r. And I thought, how can I connect these two? And I'd read their letters and I tried to understand where they came from when they put down their thoughts in their diaries. But one of the things that was most helpful to me was to walk away from this amazing archive and to go to the Adams National Historical Park in Quincy. And what I learned there is that while it's important when you're researching religion to think about the liturgical landscapes that people walked through and the worlds that they carry within, it's also important to know what their haven is from all that, right? What the home looks like. And so going through the Adams family home in Quincy was a revelation. I walked into the Stone Library, which is a beautiful building that was purpose-built as kind of a presidential library by Charles Francis Adams in the 1870s. And right over the mantle, where, I'm sorry to say, Charles Francis burned a number of letters that I wish I could still have, I found these six busts that are a small set of bronze busts that John Quincy Adams picked up when he was just about to leave Paris and head on to his next gig as the American minister to Great Britain. And these six busts are of Cicero, Homer, Plato, Virgil, Socrates, and Demosthenes. All statesmen, orators, political activists of their day, men of letters, certainly the kinds of citizens, the kinds of lowercase r Republicans whom the Adamses venerated and strove to be like. And these six busts were always referred sort of casually within the family circle to as the household gods, Mm -hmm. meaning that they were something that just like Virgil's Aeneas, you could sweep up in the middle of the night when you were on your way to your next diplomatic gig, replant them on your mantle, and they would remind you how to found a city how to earn the respect of a people, how to develop and grow a republic. And I just found this really fascinating that here's something JQA picks up kind of on the fly between trips, and it becomes this venerated set of Republican totems within the family circle. A century later in the 19 teens, Brooks, his 
grandson mm-hmm. is eager to usher visitors right up to that mantle. And it's the first thing you would see wow. on the Adams National Historical Park tour long before it opened to the public. And they would say this, this is an example of what we believe in and how much we venerate the Republic. So when I walked through the Stone Library and I saw those, I thought, well, this binds together the Christianity and the Republicanism. And now I've got the third piece of what really transforms the Adams family's mind and their sense of religion over time. And that's travel, right? They're always on the move. They're always encountering new cultures. What do they absolutely have to throw in their suitcase first? These household gods. And so it became something that was important to the family. It was important to me as a historian. And it's still extremely important, I think, for visitors who go to the Stone Library today to see. I've never been to the Stone Library, but I think this will be the Please go. this will be the first thing that I think I will now look for <laughs> when I get in there. And they're beautiful. Yeah. They're absolutely yeah. exquisite. They've been beautifully preserved and maintained. The scholarly team of rangers at the park there is fantastic about walking folks through the rooms and really putting the word yeah of the letters right next to the places where you walk and, and really binding that story together. Let's talk a little bit about the sort of uh, content here, continuity and change, right? We always talk about as historians. Mm-hmm. Answer this, if you would. How does the Adams family's faith, you know, change over the course of three centuries? Which, which mm-hmm. you know, if you read the book, you know, that's a sort of easier question maybe to answer than mm-hmm. the question mm-hmm. of what remains the same. Like, what is the continuity? Mm-hmm. Is there, a, is there a, some kind of a strand that unites all of the uh, Adams family? Maybe we could just focus on that last question because we talked a little bit about mm-hmm. the arc, right, in the previous question. Sure. Is there continuity? Is there something, that is, is there some kind of an interpretive thread that holds together uh, the Adams family over the course of these three centuries? What I discovered in the course of researching household gods was that I had to look at each generation in its own context. Right. And then I had to think, as you suggest, more broadly about what they hold to over time and what they discard. What I found is that the Adamses overall choose Protestant Christianity yeah. as their main spiritual path. Right. And for the most part, from about John Adams through his grandson, Charles Francis, the Adams family creed is conventionally Unitarian. Yeah. So by that, here's what I mean. They believe in a guiding providence. They trust that human will empowers them to freely accept or reject God's grace and path to salvation. They're less interested in miracles and revelation. They do enjoy biblical criticism and lay inquiry, but that's only because they don't love dogma. So they're really cosmopolitan, Christian, and curious. What I began to see with the earliest Adamses, even tracing back to the Puritan Adamses, and then moving forward into the 19th century, is that they evolved this cosmopolitan Christianity. And this became my way of thinking about someone who is both interested in practicing religion and growing ever more adept at critiquing it. We see this again and again. They not only travel, they not only broaden their minds, they struggle with new religious ideas. What I found with the Adamses is something that I think is actually more broadly true of Americans then and now, which is most Americans learn new religious ideas, not from any pulpit, Mm. but from each other. And so I became really interested in where they crossed with other faiths, who they met from another denomination, where they invested their money, you know, in foreign church pews, This really fascinated me, the idea that they had this continuous driving curiosity about how other religions were practiced. It gave me a whole different key into understanding the Adamses, something I hadn't fully thought about before, because over time, we have three generations of diplomats, right? So that's Mm -hmm. the job is continuous. That's the first kind of big marker of continuity here. And if you're a diplomat, what you do is you 
learn how to decode a foreign culture. For the Adamses, religion was key to doing that. That helped them understand the morals of a people in any country. It helped them understand why the leadership functioned the way it did. So some of this was the job. This is them learning how to be diplomats, right. and religion is very key to that. And so that was something that recurred over and over again. We also see with the Adamses a growing appreciation not for any kind of theology. That is something that's an academic right. debate they are not even interested in, but a growing appreciation for the sensory impact and worship aesthetics. These are people who over time, again and again, from Abigail down to her grandchildren, are more interested in how a church smells and what mm -hmm. it sounds mm -hmm. like and you know the soaring arches of Notre Dame. That's the kind of thing that Abigail gravitated to far more than any theology that might be in play. This absolutely fascinated me, and it opened up the story that I wanted to tell, a new one of American religion, where we have 300 years of laity right. talking about religion. Right. You'll notice there's not a lot of theology in this book, because the Adamses say plainly again and again, theology is not religion. Yeah. Religion is part of culture. Yeah. That's how we understand it. So for me, that just opened up a whole new story to tell. A lot of our listeners, Sarah... Maybe they don't know much about the Adams family, but maybe thanks to David McCullough, I don't know. They're going to want to know something about John and Abigail, right? Um, maybe not necessarily we'll discuss their, their relationship here, but their faith commitments. I mean, we've talked about things that unified all the Adams. Let's go back to sort of breaking apart a little bit here. Was there any significant difference? And I think you mentioned this, some significant difference between the way Abigail and John uh, thought about faith. Um, were they theological differences? Was Were they religious differences kind of rooted in the different genders? Um, maybe you could elaborate mm -hmm. a little bit on that. I often hear in certain circles that Abigail was always much more devout, maybe a little more kind of connected to her Puritan upbringing than John was, but I'll let you flesh that out for us. So Abigail and John grew up just about a town apart. Right. He grew up in Braintree, what's now Quincy. She grew up in Weymouth. And both of them were exposed early on to church town controversies. Mm -hmm. Both of them were exposed early on to the more radical dissenters' tracks in either Harvard or, in her case, in her father's library. So they had similar educations to a degree. Yeah. For Abigail... I really relied on those family history resources to tell her mm -hmm. story. So her father is a, a prominent country pastor. He has a half century worth of tenure, 20 to 30 baptisms a year, yeah. hundreds of marriages. And Abigail is always busy assisting that community. So she watches her father wrangle over church town property rights. She helps the Weymouth community rebuild after a catastrophic fire. She has a very distinct idea of what a religious institution can and cannot do in terms of community building. Now, John Adams, as a young man, goes off to Harvard, as we know, fully intending to become a Congregationalist minister. And a small-town controversy back home, a scandal, really, convinces him otherwise, and he sets his path uh, toward the courtroom as a lawyer. Now, when they meet, we see some inkling that they have some common threads mm. in terms of their religion, but those first courtship letters, there's not a lot of religion in right, them. Right. So we, we get some sense of their relationship, but not much really when it comes to their religious sentiment. Where it starts to really blossom is during the Revolutionary War. Yeah. And we have Abigail at home here in Boston, Braintree, with four small children. She's in a city that is really under attack by both the British and smallpox, mm -hmm. and John has gone off to argue for independence at the Continental Congress. They're on their own. And that amazing archive that I keep talking about, that quarter of a million manuscript pages, 1,200 of those letters in all, of course, come from John and Abigail. Mm. Their great misfortune in being torn apart by yeah. this war is our great fortune. Right, it's our right. manuscript hall, thanks to them. And what we see in those letters play out is a common religious theme of providentialism. Right. This, of course, is an idea that is all-consuming, 
um, for really a great deal of laity, especially American laity, right, from the 17th century onward. The idea that there is an omniscient providence, a good God who intervenes in human events and in human history, a God who hovers over the pages of history, who pushed their Puritan emigrants, ancestors to come here and replant Christianity, and now holds the patriot cause high in favor, a God who will guide John and Abigail's revolution through war to independence. What we begin to see in those letters is just this intense outpouring. And whether it's Abigail lacing some quotes throughout her letters, she likes to do these little kind of scriptural mashups, or whether it's John saying, certainly we depend upon providence or we fail. We see a remarkable amount of confidence in this idea that providence will push them through. They continue to hold to this idea for the rest of their lives, all the way through some very bitter elections and political setbacks, all the way through the loss of several children, all the way through the changes that start to come in the early 19th century with the rise of political parties and the loss of their friendships with people like Thomas Jefferson, Mercy Otis Warren. Mm -hmm. This is something that they use again and again, this theme of providence will help us, providence will bind us together. And it's not just that. You asked about a a difference between John and Abigail. So for John, that providentialism has some political uses. John is very adept at using religious rhetoric early on in the 1760s and 1770s, especially in his dissertation on the canon and the feudal law. Mm-hmm. It's something that he knows how to do in order to leverage support for the revolutionary cause. So he's very good at turning his pen when he needs to right. um, in that effort. Abigail has a slightly different take on religion. She sees providence, again, that all-guiding providence, right as a God who also helpfully focuses the finer brushstrokes of the arts. When she goes to Notre Dame with Thomas Jefferson, a scene that I couldn't resist rereading yeah. and rereading again in their letters, and experiences a Te Deum there and enjoys the beautiful architecture that she sees. When she hears Handel's Messiah for the first time at Westminster Abbey, she says, and here's someone who is usually a very restrained, proper Yankee clergyman's daughter, that she was one continued shudder from the beginning to the end of the (laughs) performance. It's just so emotional and effusive. So you have two people who understand the power of religion, whether it's in terms of political rhetoric or in terms of aesthetic pleasure. Uh, I think that's important to note. There's one more thing I want to say about Abigail, because this is something you have to check out when you visit the Adams National Historical Park. And it was one of my favorite details to unearth when I was researching there. The Adamses found a way always to cultivate Christianity at home. And like a lot of other revolutionary era women who were well-educated, Abigail was tasked with keeping up that model Christian home. If you go into the children's bedrooms, just over the fireplace, just about where a child would be sitting and playing on a very cold New England evening, if you look at the fireplace, it's bordered in these beautiful mulberry and ivory Delft tiles that Abigail acquired from abroad. Mm -hmm. And they're Bible scenes. And the idea is this. If you are a young child and you are just learning to sound out the words in your Psalms, you can still have this visual cue to guide you. You can still look up at the fireplace and see a Bible scene playing out before you. Before you can even read, Abigail has found a way to imprint that Christian morality on who she hopes will be the next leaders of the Republic. Right. Right. Wow. Almost like a kind of Republican motherhood as the historian Linda Kerber talked about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, It fascinates me what you said about John and the way he uses Christianity Mm -hmm. in politics, especially during the revolution. It seemed like the Adams family always tied their religious faith to their faith in the American Republic. First of all, can you give us some examples of this? And then secondly, did the Adams family influence religion in the American Republic? Or did the political ideas of the Republic influence or shape their religious beliefs? How does that interaction look? So this is a great question, because what emerges with John Adams' generation and then is carried through for subsequent generations for some time is this emerging political brand of the family. 
this is a family that knows how to create an enduring public profile. And those precepts of Christianity and republicanism are key. Now, yeah. when John Adams sits down to write his dissertation on the canon and the feudal law in the summer of 1765, he has kind of a hazy idea of his, where his own Puritan emigrants are from. He's not wholly sure. He and John Quincy will always disagree about what part of England they're from. His genealogy is a little vague, right. but he knows how to invoke it. And what he does is paint this portrait of vexed Puritans, ordinary men and women who are able to, with a liberal education and by harnessing providential will, were able to overturn abusive authority. Mm. So this idea that you can overturn tyranny with the help of God, right. a, a guiding providence who will always help Americans, is something that John knows how to capture. He has a callback to his Puritan ancestors mm -hmm. that he uses more than once, and it's remarkably effective. He's able to show not just that he's descended from Puritans, but from dissenters. And this is a really important idea, right? If you're descended from radicals, of course, you're going to be the best person suited to lead a revolution, a revolution that he would remind you is already in the hearts and minds of the people. Right. And so we have that first step of claiming an early American religious past in order to argue for an American national future. That's a really important step that he's making there. So John Adams is shrewd about pivoting and using this religious rhetoric when he's arguing a political cause during the revolution. He and Abigail are also very savvy about understanding what religion gives them as they embark on this career of public service. Really a, a joint career that neither of them planned on. This was not exactly right. his expected career trajectory when he first showed up at Harvard. And then he very quickly has a diplomatic career and a vice presidential and less happy presidential career mm -hmm. that he takes on. They are always curious about what religion can do for them, what the experience of being religious can translate into to make the world better. Right. And one of the first things that they seize on is their hometown practice of really a liberal congregationalism. And I want to make a distinction here because there's been some scholarship on this, and I think this is important to underline for folks who are wondering about how denominational life plays into this story. Mm -hmm. There's a great argument to be made that John and Abigail Adams have to learn kind of lowercase congregationalism, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. how they're going to act in a political community first in their churches. Yeah. So a capital C congregationalist, right, you are able to choose and call a minister, set their salary, negotiate some of the liturgical questions, change the intercessions. These are things where the laity have to come together in a body of people hash out difficult questions, and make recommendations for the moral good of the rest of the community. Yeah. And so practicing that kind of congregationalism or even kind of a form of democracy right. in the churches empowers them once they have, you know, the first federal architecture coming into view in the 1780s. Right. It's fascinating to see, you know, the same kind of Protestant constitutional conventions happening alongside the political right. federal constitution, yeah, right? So you have yeah. this idea of where do we practice debating each other? Where do we go to talk about the big questions? Oh, John and Abigail are thinking, we've already done that. Mm -hmm. We've been doing that for generations in our churches. Right. Of course, we can also do it in whatever you're calling this now, a Continental Congress, right. a Federal right. Congress, a White House, whatever you want to call it. So they're always thinking about how religion can translate into the public sphere, which I think gets at your question of, you know, what, what's influencing more politics or religion? Yeah. Of course, it's a give and take, right? right? right. They're, they're avidly looking for ways to widen the dialogue between the two. Yeah, I've often wondered about, you know, especially with all the founders, you know, I, I wrote this book, Was America Founded as a Christian Nation, where I talk, I have this section on all the different founders. And I often... An excellent book. Oh, thank I you thank, for writing well, it. Well, thank you. <laughs> I often wondered, you know, if there was some kind of religion that 
you know, offered a kind of critique to the Republic or a critique to government or, you know, I, I teach, I teach here at a school, Messiah College, which has kind of Anabaptist roots, you know, where, Mm -hmm. where, you know, we don't even fly a flag on campus because we, you know, Mm -hmm. Anabaptists, I'm not from that tradition, but Anabaptists believe that the kingdom of God, as they would say, is always higher than the nation. And the Mennonite radical reformation tradition has always been a critic of kind of conflating religion and the Republic. I often wonder, would the founders have any kind of use for a radical kind of form of Protestantism that kind of undermined uh, some of the essential tenets of the Republic, uh, whether it be slavery or whether it be, um, mm. you know, whatever? I mean, would they have any use for that kind of religion? And I, I, I often think about that. It seems like the Adamses mm. would not have. Mm. Well, they'd surely have an opinion about it. Oh, sure. I mean, yeah. With- John Adams, in his retirement, becomes kind of a scholar of ancient religions. He's completely fascinated with how dissenters think in other lands. So he seeks out the radicals. And this is interesting because John and Abigail and their descendants from generation to generation, when I look at their libraries and I look at who they read, they go for the most radical rebels and revolutionaries they can possibly find. If you are a fringe thinker of any kind, the Adamses are sure to seek you out and read you, which I think is absolutely fascinating. So they're interested in that. I don't know that they particularly feel that is going to be the first thing that brings down the Republic. I think they're more concerned about political partisanship and what John Adams calls the seed plots of greed and ambition that may tear it apart. But certainly they think of religion, and you've got to think like John Adams for a minute. In every system, he's looking for checks and balances. So you would hope that religion could be a gentle check on an abusive government. Yeah, Our time's just about running out here, but I I got to at least get to John Quincy. Um, (laughs) Oh, sure. You know, I learned a lot about John Quincy. There's a lot of there's a lot of kind of historians. Uh, I wouldn't even call them historians. Kind of culture warriors who use the past, you know, to promote, especially on the Christian right side of the aisle, which I tend to write a little bit about and I'm familiar with. You know, who who have kind of labeled John Quincy Adams kind of an evangelical, a product of the Second Great Awakening, right? But but that's not the case at all. I mean, you know, Quincy Adams certainly lived in a period of great evangelical fervor in the country. But um, am I right to suggest that I think you make this argument um, that he never truly embraces this kind of second great awakening, if you call it kind of culture? What were the nature of his kind of religious beliefs? So first off, I want to say thank you to all the scholars who have brought us a JQA renaissance in the last yeah. few years. There's been a bumper crop That's right. really, yeah. of scholarship. And because we've made a digitized version of the manuscript pages of his 51 odd volumes of his diary, which stretched just really from revolution to Republic and are just this mm-hmm. honest and unabashed chronicle of what it was like to live that. Yeah. It's been really wonderful to see all these different perspectives on JQA. When I was looking for signs of his religious life, I found that sometimes he was at his most honest when he was not in America. So I found he was a great religious explorer in places like St. Petersburg, Russia, or in at the Hague or in London or in Paris. These are the places where he felt he had to come up with some kind of American Protestant profile to project. He always thinks of himself as kind of the friendly foreign American in the pew. Uh And he's, pretty friendly, I have to say. He, he has a lot of fascinating religious encounters with different faiths. I don't think that he was particularly attracted to evangelicalism. Right. He has a few comments in his diary where he worries that he's being too emotional and too yeah. effusive. Yeah. And it's funny because you think, oh, but it's just your diary. But in the Adams family, where your diplomatic apprenticeship was to sit down and write your father's letters and read your father's diary, he knew that subsequent yep. generations would be pouring over his papers. I don't think he, he knew that they would end up on the internet, but I think he would have appreciated that actually quite a bit. So when we look at the nature of his religious beliefs, we find someone who at his core is very much a Unitarian, but he's also 
a great explorer of other faiths. He's someone who is still struggling with religious toleration. And we get that story quite a bit from his wife, Louisa Catherine. Mm -hmm. You know, Sarah, I wish we could keep going here. There's still more, (laughs) there's still more members of the family to talk about. More reason to buy the book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, Henry, Henry is such, Henry Adams is such a fascinating figure for all kinds of reasons to me. I wish we had more time to talk about him, but yeah, Drew, you're right. Uh, this is a tease, right? If you want to know more about JQA, uh, Louisa, Henry, Charles, uh, Charles Francis, right? Is that was, that was his middle name? Mm-hmm. And you got uh, it. you've got them all. And the unknown, <laughs> virtually unknown Brooks Adams, get a copy of Household Gods. You have any other Adams projects in the works? I mean, you're there at, at the papers at the Massachusetts Historical Society. Or are you moving in a different direction now with your next project? We put out a book a year in the Adams Papers editorial project, so I am working hard on the Papers of John Adams, Volume 20, which will cover the period of the first federal Congress. It goes from about June 1789 to February 1791. So right now I have John Adams being a very cranky Yankee presiding (laughs) over the Senate. That's what I'm working on right now. And then in my own work, I am studying how state constitutions Mm. are formed uh, between the revolution and the civil war. I'm fascinated with how the idea of we, the people takes shape and changes at the local level and how people make change. Sarah, thank you once again for taking the time. The book is household gods, the religious lives of the Adams family, Oxford university press. It's a great book. I highly recommend if you're interested in the founding fathers or American religious history, Get a hold of this book for your library. Um, You can get it anywhere where good books are sold. Sarah, thanks so much. Thank you, and thank you, listeners. Obviously serious what I meant. This is a great book. I mean, it's. I wish we had more time to talk to her, like I said, about the late 19th and 20th century Adams family. But this approach that she is taking, using one family to kind of think about this arc of change over time in American religion. It's, it's, it's really well done. And she writes very, very well too. One little strand that we didn't get a chance to really discuss, but I thought was kind of rattling around in my brain as we're having the conversation, you know, she talks about how this family by the end, right. The Adams family, or at least members of the Adams family are, are flirting with Roman Catholicism. And I couldn't, I couldn't help but remember it in our episode on, on Elizabeth Seton you actually read a quotation from John Adams uh, talking about the the how strong anti-Catholicism and, and Catholicism was in early America, and I, I found that kind of that's a very striking change that, yeah. that John Adams does not have good things to say uh, about Roman Catholicism, and then Sarah is discussing the the influence of Catholic worship on Abigail and his wife. Right? right I mean, right. again, getting to what you said in your commentary, yeah. history is complex. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, Brooks Adams, who sort of life goes, I think, goes into the 20th century, dabbled with Catholicism. She tells that, Sarah tells that story really, really well, um, sort of ironically, right? Um, by the way, we are recording this episode two or three days, I think, now after the big fire at Notre Dame in Paris. So um, a lot of those Notre Dame references, I think, are, are came up in the course of the episode. Reading her book the other night kind of prompted me to kind of really rethink both in terms of lived religion and and families as a kind of way to structure the story of American religious history. Again, this is a this is a really valuable book. And again, if you're interested in uh, religion and the founders, I know a lot of you are because you came to the podcast through some of my own work in this area. Uh, This is definitely a book to go out and get. Well, Drew, I think that's a wrap for today. Big wrap. 50 episodes in the books. We did it. Right? 50 more. Here's to 50 more, right? But we we need your support in order to do it. Head over to our Patreon page. uh, Help us out. We could really use your support. We still got a lot of great gifts uh, for people, mugs and signed books. So uh, thank you again, all of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast listeners. Thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting us through 50 episodes. Let's hope for... We'll be doing this with a hundredth episode soon, but while we're waiting to get to a hundred, may your way of improvement always lead you home.
This has been a production of The Wave Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. The Wave Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice, so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at TWOILH Podcast. The podcast was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Richard Green, Margaret Graves, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future, as well as the Lindhurst Group. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios at Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Sarah Giorgini. Our studio producer is Abby LaBianca. I'm your producer, Drew Durley Hermeling, and your host is John Fia. Okay, Nelsa, can you sing it? Na 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 na